0: Welcome to the Christian Wealth Podcast, where people come to learn what the Bible says about money, wealth, and business. Be inspired by some of the greatest Christian thinkers and commentators from around the planet. Enjoy this episode with your host, Alex Cook.
1: Over this next hour, you might want to lean in a little closer to the radio as we Put our eyes on the very first budget of the Albanese Labor Government. The Treasurer Jim Chalmers handed down the budget in the Parliament last night, describing it as a responsible budget that is right for the times. It comes as households are already feeling the pinch... With inflation soaring, unsettled financial markets and international turmoil with a war in Ukraine and challenging economic times for our biggest trading partners, the United States and China. Pressure has been on the government to protect Australians from the global headwinds. So, did the Treasurer succeed? And is there a dimension that Christians can use to evaluate financial management? Well, three special guests on the special 2020 budget panel today. Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth With Purpose, former stockbroker, now founder of Wealth With Purpose, helping to equip Christians to honour God with their finances by teaching sound financial skills based on the wisdom of the Bible. Let me say a special welcome along to you, Alex Cook. Thanks Neil, great to be back again. In the studio with me, Emeritus Professor Rod St Hill, Christian economist with a background in banking and higher education. These days he serves as a pastor at Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast. Rod devotes his time to church as well as business as mission and kingdom initiatives. Rod, a special welcome along to you. Thanks Neil and it's good to be with you. And Gavin Martin, who's founder of Cornerstone Wealth, based in Melbourne, where he's senior financial advisor. His business model is founded on the idea that a person's true worth is not measured by financial net worth, rather, that the individual is of inestimable value. Gavin Martin, a special welcome along to you.
0: Thank you. Great to be with you and Alex and Rod.
1: Okay, well, uh, three of you on the panel, and uh, what a privilege this is. It's always great getting your insights. And we might wonder, is there a Christian dimension when it comes to issues around financial management, issues of governments managing economies? I'm going to ask each of you for your overall impressions of last night's budget. Let me start with Dr. Rod St. Hill, who's in the studio with me. Rod, what are your
2: thoughts? Well, Neil, it probably won't surprise anybody, but my biggest concern is with the size of government. And uh, with this budget, the size of government is definitely growing. As the government grows bigger, there's more rules, more regulations and more bureaucracy, and that actually compromises freedom. And I think that undermines one of the basic tenets of Christianity, which is that every single person really matters. And as our freedom is constrained, there's less Latitude, if you like, for individuals to express their individuality, their creativity as well. So I am concerned about the size of government. However, lots of the initiatives are going to help those who are vulnerable, but I fear only in the short term. We'll unpack some more on the size of government, no doubt, as
1: we go through our budget commentary. Gavin Martin, oftentimes we call on you to look at some of the minutiae and how that affects us individually, those issues in the budget, but what was your overall impression?
0: Um, overall, I think it's been a successful budget for the uh, for the time and potentially part of the motivation is Liz trust-proofing uh, the budget Uh, We've seen a a, a significant uh, uh, world power lose their uh, Prime Minister in such a short amount of time because of some rash decisions that the market then responded to. And I think the maybe conservative nature of this budget meeting the the election commitments uh, but not making any major decisions, uh, significant decisions, uh, is probably what what's made the i guess the budget succeed for this particular time but there's so many questions that are that are still to be answered and I guess it's only one hundred and ninety five days until the next budget uh, so we'll be revising it revisiting it all again
1: pretty soon alex cook, what were your overall impressions
3: yeah look i mean i have similar feelings to both uh rod and uh you know what was just was said but like i would just to add to that i was probably relieved um that i thought there was a reasonable restraint on spending i think rod's comments are very true and particularly true over the longer term you know we've got this growing government and we saw that even with under the morrison government too it's just growing and growing growing um but i think there was uh you know as gavin said there's a bit of conservatism here uh, there's a restraint on it to try and keep inflation under control. So they are probably taking a bit of pressure off the RBA. I mean, the RBA is most likely going to keep raising rates, but I think they didn't add any fuel to the fire, so to speak. Um, some people will probably complain that, that, you know, there's a lack of handouts given the cost of living pressures and so forth but I was relieved that they restrained themselves and didn't actually go down that path, although I suspect they may save that for an election year in a couple of years' time. Um, they also got lucky. I mean, the deficit was nowhere near as bad as what was predicted, like it was predicted in March this year to be $78 billion. But because of, you know, very strong commodity prices, it's only $36 billion. So it's not as bad as was expected in saying that though we're still running deficits we've been running them now since what 2008 and they from what i can understand from reading through the budget projections they're actually going to get worse than was expected in coming years so labor's going to have to potentially raise taxes in the future to try and cover off some of their future planned spending so i don't i think this year we probably got off lightly and we'll see more challenges uh in the next year or two so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens um the only other comment i thought that was interesting that they've included for the first time was a thing called a well-being statement which i think is interesting you know when we're looking at it from a christian perspective and saying well you know what how, how should christians look at these things it's interesting that the government has now introduced a whole nother way of looking at the budget and so there's basically a comparison from Australia to other OECD countries across, uh, I think, 37 different indicators. Uh, As you can imagine, Australia is a very blessed nation so in terms of most indicators like things like household income life expectancy all that sort of stuff Australia scores very well Uh, interestingly though, the one where we score very poorly uh, and the one I've been banging on uh, ad nauseum for years is the household debt where we're one of the worst countries in the world but interesting that the government has decided that well-being uh, goes beyond purely you know financial things so it's just interesting uh, thing to reflect on I think
1: We'll also uh, pick up on some of those things, no doubt, some more as we continue our conversation. Interesting, as Alex says there, uh, it's just a preparation type of a budget for something bigger perhaps next year. Some describing it, Rodson Hill, as like a mini budget or a, an economic statement, basically telling us what things are like, where things are at now for Australia's economy with more heavy lifting expected for the May budget 2023. Any thoughts around the fact that it was a conservative type of a budget and more to come?
2: Uh, I wouldn't call it conservative. We haven't had a conservative budget in Australia since 2014. <laughs> And that was killed by the Senate and the media. So it's been all downhill from there as far as I'm concerned in terms of the financial side of the Commonwealth. And what it has meant is that government keeps growing. I think we should be worried about that as Christians because it ultimately constrains individual freedom. And one of the things that Christians have fought for for thousands of years is freedom – for individuals, and from my perspective, of course, with a business background, I see it as stifling the creativity that we actually need to maintain the wealth of our nation. And uh, money's not everything, don't get me wrong, it isn't. But this is the federal budget, and we are talking about how the federal government is managing the money side of the economy. I don't think any government has done a good job with that since. 2014 big government tentacles
1: everywhere uh, into every household every business and the risk there that uh, the coercive nature of government then begins to uh, grow and take over uh, thought or two here i'll go to gavin martin on uh, on the thoughts of big government uh, of those sorts of challenges because if you've got uh, budget repair in mind, big government has to be one of those things that can be cut. But as Rod St Hill says, this hasn't been attempted since 2014. So what are your thoughts, Gavin?
0: Yeah, definitely. The, the major concern is that there's no sight of a, uh, a surplus budget uh, in, in, the, in the projections forward. So that's a, a massive concern. And I think that's where the heavy lift, lifting needs to start if it's not now, it's going to start uh, sometime soon, and that's um, where we might see some of those tax cuts uh, uh, be retracted. So they committed to the, the to the tax cuts, uh, I think, from the 2024 or uh, July of 2024 uh, period. So I reckon they'll need to make some of those really more difficult decisions uh, to see, you know, address the ongoing uh, deficit that's not really sustainable uh, long term.
1: Yeah. Alex Cook, when we talk big government, sometimes we talk dependence on the state, uh, those sorts of dimensions where we bring a Christian commentary to these sorts of issues. Any thoughts for uh, what Rod and Gavin have shared around big government and uh, perhaps Christian perspectives here?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, they're spot on. I think the Christian perspective I have on it is that I think what we're leading to is a form of enslavement. I mean, Rod makes the point very validly that as government grows, freedoms get stifled. And that's across a whole range of areas, um, you know, because you get more regulation too. It's not just – but I, I'm concerned that as the interest rates surge, which is what they're doing at the moment, and we have we don't really know where that's going to end, like we don't know how long – Inflation is going to remain high. Um, you know, you've got a country now that owes more than a trillion dollars between federal and state governments. So the cost of servicing that debt now costs more than it does uh, in terms of just the interest alone is more than what we spend on things like education. So it's really a massive issue in terms of the priorities of the nation going forward where we're going to end up just servicing. huge amount of debt and you only have to look what's going on overseas if you take japan for example which is the most indebted of all the western nations something like a third of their budget revenue is just interest repayments so it's a really long-term worry because ultimately then what it'll do is it'll lead to a higher interest rates and and all of us getting you know basically all of us are going to have a lower standard of living Um, but it also means that um, ultimately you potentially if you keep growing and growing it there'll come a point of default now, whether that's 10 years away, 20 years away, I have no idea. But what I'm concerned with is there's no intent on either side of politics, and it's the same in other Western countries, there's no intent to repay it. And the Bible makes it very clear that you, if you take on debt, you need to repay it. You know, the Bible says the wicked don't repay. So, but the other issue is, is the enslavement that it's going to cause on our nation and the curtailing of freedoms, both economic and social, as government gets bigger and bigger, as Rod rightly says.
1: No intent to pay down the debt. There are all sorts of issues at in play. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments and we're going to move on to some winners and losers. Christian commentary around how people win, how people lose in a federal budget. Our three special guests on our special panel today, Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth with Purpose, emeritus professor Rod St. Hill, Christian economist, and Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth. We're back with more in just a few moments.
2: A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision.
1: An opportunity today to look at Christian dimensions, commentary around last night's federal budget and three special guests on our special 2020 panel today. Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth With Purpose, Emeritus Professor Rod St Hill, who is Christian economist. These days he leads a church, Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast. And Gavin Martin is founder of Cornerstone Wealth. Before we talk winners and losers, uh, let me talk big picture here for a few moments because uh, no matter what happens locally, there are some effects that happen uh, from what uh, the international scene I- is. Uh, Rodson Hill, if we're asking about the, uh, the world economy right now, reeling from war, still recovering from COVID... Uh, All sorts of things that are going on. We talk about Australia facing headwinds. This is because things happen overseas in a big way that affect us quite dramatically.
2: That's true. And the reason for that, of course, is that Australia relies very heavily on international markets to export our produce to, uh, particularly minerals and agricultural products. So what happens in the rest of the world does have an effect on us. I would have to say, however, that I don't believe the evidence points to the war in Europe being the major issue behind things like increases in energy prices. The two biggest issues I believe that uh, confront most economies in the world, including ours, is that government. the way in which governments responded to COVID, COVID itself actually caused very little disruption, but it was the way in which governments responded to COVID that caused massive Uh, disruption, particularly to the supply side of our economies. And the other huge issue is the way in which governments are handling um, a change in energy production as as a response to perceived or real global warming. And that is sucking billions and billions of dollars out of economies all over the world. And Australia's caught up in that as well, of course. Alex Cook, when it comes to the way the economy's been
1: affected, as we've emerged now largely from the COVID crisis years, uh, your thoughts on how that's affected our economy? As Rod St Hill says, uh, poor government decision-making and management through that time may have been a bigger contributor to our economic challenges.
3: Oh, 100%. I mean, I think he's hit the nail on the head. It's government mismanagement. And I share the same concerns um, with what I, I call it climate mania with what's going on in Europe particularly. I mean, it looks to me like they're committing economic suicide with what they're doing, and energy prices have skyrocketed. Uh, just to give you an idea, in the UK, the average household is now paying close to £4,000 a year for their energy when the average income is only 40-odd thousand um, pounds. So, you know, it's 10 to 15% of their income is going towards energy, which is just crazy. And it strikes me that particularly Labor, you know, when they got elected, they said, oh, we've got a mandate now for, to deal with climate change. And so we're following the same crazy path. Um, and in America, they've also done the same crazy thing where under Donald Trump, they were energy independent, pre, um, pre uh, the current administration. First thing Joe Biden does is he gets in, he shuts down the, um, the, the Keystone Pipeline, and now in it, America's going around the oil, begging Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, these horrible <laughs> countries, to increase their oil production. So it's, it's just really mad, and it makes no sense um, what's going on. And, of course, unfortunately, the Labor government seems uh, hell-bent on going down this climate change path, as as Rod says, whether it's perceived or real, this is what governments seem utterly determined to do. And unfortunately, that you know they're only in the budget. They're predicting what a fifty percent increase in power prices over the next eighteen months. I suspect, with all these climate policies, it will end up much much worse than that over coming years. Difficult to predict. But there seems to be no ends in sight. So Australia should be looking at what Europe's done and America and saying, no, this is not the path that we should be going down, because it will have a big impact on Australian households.
1: And uh, more modern times might show that we're not learning from the mistakes that are being made overseas. Oftentimes, we have a little bit of a forerunner in what happens in other economies, and we do tend
2: to miss uh, the opportunities of learning by those mistakes. Very briefly, Neil, I think one of the things that governments around the world have forgotten is that there is also such a thing as adaptation. I, I think mm. it's, it's, it's um, you know, human pride which leads us to say we can change the climate. Well, I've got serious doubts about that, but maybe we can, but at the very least, we should also be making adaptations to the changing climate. Governments seem to have forgotten that adaptation is also a rational response. Let's move to winners and losers from last night's
1: budget. And uh, Gavin Martin, uh, you like to look at uh, some of the, the minute of these sorts of budget documents. Uh, thoughts here for winners and losers.
0: Uh, we normally uh, touch on the aid budget, uh, uh, Neil, and uh, notice this year that it's projected to uh, increase um, over the coming um, uh, coming financial year. And often that's perceived, and I think there's been commentary in the um, in the media already. Oh, that's a great thing that they're increasing aid, but it's pretty hard to work out exactly where that aid is being spent. And I, I think mm. Rod and I have reflected on that on numerous occasions. But it actually doesn't seem like it's aid in the traditional sense that you would you would see helping uh, people out of poverty. But it's it's um, it's more around investing in. In a commercialisation of university research, or, or something along those lines, so it, it might actually sound great and help uh, the focus on helping uh, people in, in need with um, you know increasing what they call aid, but I, I, I'm a bit questionable as to what the what the actual expenditure will achieve.
1: Uh, Rodson Hill, on this issue, uh, let's take the South Pacific as an example, uh, because there have been cuts in aid now over this past decade. We've been talking about those as they've been happening. Every time we do one of these, we reflect on cuts to foreign aid. Uh, There's not as much of a cut. I think there's just a slight boost in foreign aid, but... uh, other nations like China get a foothold in the South Pacific if these nations are neglected
2: any thoughts here around um, around these things I might be unpopular in saying this but look governments don't do foreign aid they don't do foreign aid they do foreign relations and I, I think the only rational way of looking at the so-called foreign aid budget is that it is primarily an instrument of developing and maintaining good relationships with other nations proper foreign aid is normally undertaken by private, Charities, uh, and you know, I take my hat off to organisations like World Vision and Compassion, which do the real work with real people at the real coalface in the villages where the help is needed. Interestingly, those are Christian charity yes, organisations,
1: and and so yes, there's a political dimension to all foreign yes. aid. Uh, Alex Cook, uh, a thought from you?
3: Yeah, well, look, I, I think Rod's right, and the comment I thought about when I saw that they're increasing it. Uh, in the Pacific, it looked to me more like a national security issue as opposed to helping them in any meaningful way. So I think exactly as Rod said, it's not about... And Gavin said the same thing. It's not so much about aid. It's more about keeping up good foreign relations because the fact that it's going to the Pacific and with all the, you know, sabre-rattling that's been going on with China over the last uh, couple of months, it strikes me as more of a a decision uh, from a national security perspective rather than from a... um, uh, you know concern for the poor in those nations
1: let's come back to gavin martin uh, millions are going to miss out on uh, 1500 dollars tax relief axing the lower middle income tax offset did you have some thoughts around that gavin martin
0: oh no i think this was brought in a little bit earlier under the previous government as part of the um boost uh, during covid so i think it's um it's probably a reasonable response, um, uh, particularly in the climate, because if we continue, if it continue to stimulate at this point in time, it's going to get inflation out of uh, control and interest rates are going to continue to go up and it's going to be more painful. So I think it's reasonable at this point in time to uh, to implement that change. Yeah. Uh,
1: power price rises. Uh, let me come to you, Rod St Hill. Uh, power price rises, uh, 20% in the next uh, financial year, then 30% the year after that, people are saying 50% rise, uh, even some who are getting a little bit more down to the detail and say it's 56%, so it's closer to 60%. That's huge
2: rises in power prices. Oh, look, I've heard one prediction that it will go up 100%, but even if the 56% or so that is being talked about, it will mean that within a period of less than two years, our energy bills would have gone up by over 100% because we've just copped a 35% increase, don't forget. And it's gonna make it very, very difficult for low income earners. Look, there's lots of stuff being banded about. We're being told that renewable energy doesn't cost us anything. Now, that is actually true. What costs is building the transmission networks to such an extent that we can cope with, you know, parts of the country where the sun isn't shining or where the wind isn't blowing. So it's transmission infrastructure and its storage infrastructure, which is really expensive. So although it may not cost anything in a marginal sense to harness the sun's energy or the wind's energy, actually getting it into homes reliably is horrendously expensive. I think it's going to be so expensive that it will drive the nation to poverty. I actually don't think it is ever going to happen because nobody will vote in a government that will continue this madness. Gentlemen, just as we're talking through Christian
1: dimensions on these sorts of things from the budget last night, I wonder if we can draw attention to some of the things that are very concerning, like the blowout in expenditure when it comes to uh, uh, those sorts of initiatives like the NDIS. And there might be a whole lot of other dimensions in there. Gavin Martin, let me come to you first. Concerns about the government getting spending under control because things do blow out the way they do.
0: Yeah, I think one of the major concerns is that there's no plan currently to get the budget back to surplus. The key five areas are the interest that we're paying on our debt, aged care, health, defence and the NDIS, and interest expense and NDIS, the two majors that are really blowing out at the moment, I really think there needs to be focus. I don't know if Bill Shorten's focus is to um, stop the rorts within the NDIS, but there needs to be um, some sort of, um, uh, you know, control mechanisms put on that program, I believe, uh, from anecdotal evidence um, that um, it's just going to um meant the budget is never going to get under control if these items. And I think there's Medi- that can be extended to Medicare and um, uh, and some rorts that have been uh, revealed uh, in that area recently. We really need to get these um, areas under control uh, so that we've got any hope of getting back to surplus in the future.
1: A very important dimension to raise if we're bringing Christian commentary to a budget like last night. Uh, when you use the words rot or even the potential for corruption. And let's not make any allegations on this program, but uh, we did see of recent times, uh, Rod St Hill, uh, some allegations of rotting and corruption within the Medicare system and one might be concerned about some of these bigger uh, programs like the NDIS. Any thoughts here, Christian commentary on, on how these things can get out of control and how you might reel it in?
2: Look, it's pretty difficult when people don't have um, an, an absolute moral system. Um, everything's relative and many people think, well if it's the government's money, it doesn't really matter. And uh, what they don't understand it's actually is our money. It's not the government's money, the government can't just manufacture money because if it does, all that will happen down the track is that they'll either have to tax us more, they'll have to cut their spending or there will be inflation. It looks to me as if we're we're choosing the inflation route. Uh, in a lot of cases, Co-payments, I think, work very well to uh, minimise opportunities for making false claims. So, for example, if we did have a Medicare co-payment, a small co-payment, that would make it much more difficult in terms of accounting software for anybody to uh, basically tell lies about the patients they've seen or the, or the treatments that they gave, because there's got to be a record record of somebody actually making the co-payment. So that's one of the reasons why I was so disappointed when uh, Tony Abbott's um, quest to have a $7 co-payment through Medicare was was, was quashed and it was, was ridiculed in the media, totally irresponsible in my view. And now here we are, we've got a government saying, well, there's $8 billion worth of rorting in the Medicare system. What do you expect when you don't provide gates?
1: And so, the blowout of expenditure in a lot of these dimensions, NDIS one that's been mentioned. Alex Cook, do you have a further uh, thought or two when it comes to the possibility of rotting and corruption and how governments might bring these sorts of things under control?
3: Well, look, I don't think I've got necessarily any particular value add to that portion of it, um, other than I think the bigger picture question here Uh, and this is the question I think Christians need to answer, is how do we actually help people in need? So it's not just, obviously, I mean, we're talking Medicare, and things like that, but the bigger question is, with government is just providing endless services, and it just grows and grows and grows every year, at what point do we decide enough is enough, and what services, you know, should the government in fact provide? And what can we do to, um, you know, bring that under control? Um, but also it applies to other areas too. So not just Medicare, but if you look at the, the, the history of, say, the age pension, uh, you know, Rod sort of touched on it before, when there's, out, when there's no morality involved here, people do all sorts of things to try and get the age pension when they shouldn't. But not only that, if you look at the history of it, it was brought in, I think, in 1905 uh, as a payment when you reached your life expectancy. So at the time it was 65. And so it was a genuine welfare payment for those who had reached life expectancy. But these days it's now a retirement strategy and it's therefore seen as a human right that the government must provide for me. So I think there's a a range of issues here one is around the moral side of it and what is it that the government should actually provide for our society and then who should be actually trying to meet the needs of people in society and i would argue that social security is the worst thing that's ever happened to the church because historically and yet we've got all these fabulous christian charities that do all this great work overseas but the local church in my view should be the hands and feet of Jesus, and it should be the ones that are helping people in need. Obviously, we're not going to provide medical care necessarily, um, but you know, there's this huge opportunity for us to help people rather than outsourcing it to the government which is what's happened over the last hundred years with Centrelink, we've just outsourced it and therefore people think a we're irrelevant but also as I say many Christians in my view don't even know anyone who's poor they, they haven't they don't mix with them and they don't you know they don't actually know who to help in their own neighborhood so I think the bigger discussion here is actually given we can all see we're heading towards a crisis in the future you know the, the, we're heading towards a lower standard of living that's guaranteed and ...unless we get off this trajectory, therefore the church is now going to need to rise up and start looking at how it can meet people's needs and it can help people through much more challenging times as we go forward, rather than allowing for the government to do it all. Because the government, A, doesn't do a great job, just like you know the guys were talking about before about foreign aid, but B... I think it's a fantastic, you know, kingdom opportunity for the church to rise up and start looking after people um, and providing services that
1: uh, the government can't do or doesn't do well. In some sense, we might say the church uh, ought to be partnering with government uh, so that it isn't bypassed as it is in this secular day and age. Let's talk about uh, the government and the poor. And uh, it's not just the poor here, but uh, certainly the homeless. Uh, not everyone who's homeless is poor, but there are a lot of people who don't have an opportunity even to rent a house. There is an initiative for a million new homes. Uh, that part of the budget, uh, Rodson Hill, what are your thoughts for uh,
2: that uh, initiative? Well, I'm the dismal scientist today for sure because it doesn't enamor me very much. The the real issue we've got here is there's not enough land to build houses on where people want to live and there are a lot of government charges that make building a house very, very expensive. If they can actually build as many houses as they want and New Zealand's got an extremely poor record uh, on a similar policy, If, if they can somehow rather marshal all of the resources to do it, it still won't stop the long-term problem of housing affordability because the problem is a supply problem and it's largely tied up with the fact that we have very, very strict um, processes for the release of land for residential purposes uh, around Australia. Now, a lot of that is not Commonwealth. It's, It's state government. A lot of the charges are state government charges. I don't think the Commonwealth government can do a lot, nor should it.
1: Gavin Martin, let me bring you in to this part of the conversation. Uh, Thoughts here for a million new homes. Uh, And of course, uh, there's the thought of a new accord and uh, also the provision of a Housing Australia Future Fund uh, uh, to be able to fund social housing. Any thoughts here around how this process might work or whether it's too complicated involving uh, federal, state and local governments all under one accord?
0: Yeah, I think I said in the... Of it's just being too complicated. When somebody's going to buy a house, there's so many different uh, options in terms of support, and it almost ends up being so complex that most people don't utilise the, the, the programs that are available. Uh, so you know, I, I wonder whether you could channel, you know, getting back to what Rod said earlier on, the smaller government can actually be a lot more efficient. So if you got rid of all these programs and uh, red tape, would it just make housing more affordable? Instead of having this complex program where they're talking about superannuation money being used to fund uh, a lot of this housing development. So, yeah, I was trying to get my head around all the different schemes and how they were going to fund some of the. Um, it sounded like some were commercial type houses being built, some were going to be, was it 30,000 social or affordable homes? Um, it'd be great if you could. Um, you know, provide for those uh, homes but it's better it's even better again if you can facilitate people purchasing their own uh, properties uh, outright.
1: Let's move on to some broad perspectives and there might be some individual or specific elements of the budget we can draw in here but future generations and the concerns that you might have for future generations there'll be Christian commentary around setting direction uh, where the trajectories lead let me start with you alex cook uh, thoughts for future generations does this budget do anything uh, to prepare for uh, a good outcome for future generations or is it more about uh, the me me mentality
3: oh look i think it's more of the same i think um, really our problem set in i think in 2008 when we had the gfc where essentially globally politicians decided that they were gonna to continue to kick the can down the road. Uh, and so they've all, all been running deficits ever since. They've all lowered rates to, to close to zero. And of course, that's now blown up and due to inflation. And obviously that's all come out of the COVID crisis, but now you've got interest rates going up at the fastest rate in history. Um, and so politicians for the last 12, 14 years have been kicking the can down the road. Um, and just spending money to, to prop up and and solve their problems. It's kind of like the parent who doesn't want to dish out any tough medicine to their kids. They don't want to teach them, you know, you know, tough love, so to speak. And so it's the exact same thing. None of the politicians want to level the population, and none of them want to do anything that's sustainable. And so as a result, the end outcome is quite obvious, and that is that we are... And what, what worries me is because it's gonna cause a lot of social unrest, uh, and you've already seen that already with the energy crisis, there's protests every weekend in Europe. But we're gonna to to see a lower standard of living going forward, uh, you're gonna see higher taxes, and you're also gonna end up seeing services cut and some sort of combination of all of those. And that's very unfair on future generations. You know, most people and most parents, I'm a, I'm a parent, I've got four kids, you know, you desire that your children have it better than you. You know, if you ever listen to those that went through the war, they always say, you know, we we fought, fought for freedom because we wanted to, you know, provide better for our for our children and so forth. And it's the same thing. But when it comes to the politics side of it, it's the opposite. They want to keep kicking down the can down the road. And they are very short-term in their mindset, which is why Asia is going to do so much better than us because they have a longer-term perspective than we do. But in the West, everything is so short-termism just about the, the next election cycle and you know most politicians in my view don't think more than you know a few months ahead um, and uh, the result of this of course as I say is the hollowing out of the middle class that's what we're, what we're witnessing in the west the hollowing out of the middle class and that is going to um, have a huge effect on future generations and it's, it's sad because it is avoidable
1: Rodson Hill, future generations, and uh, even as Alex Cook is saying, short-term perspectives for our governments here. Uh, There are some comparisons you can make with some other governments in Asia, but ideological positions, uh, big spending, how do these sorts of things do you think
2: affect future generations? Well, they will affect future generations because they won't have the same freedoms that we, we have now it's inevitable that as the size of the government grows, freedoms are restricted. And, and, and the sense in which I'm saying that, it goes like this. The government takes money from some people and then it says, well, if you meet these criteria or if you behave in a particular way, we're going to give you some money. But that's what all the regulations and all the rules are that exist in things like the NDIS, for example. It, it's a nightmare for someone to actually access that money. I know because I've got... Like in my family who have tried, and I've talked with a lot of people who are sort of in that, what is now an industry. It, it's not easy to get your hands on the money, even though there is so many billions of dollars being being spent. So that's the sense in which freedom is being restricted. You, you're forced into a box, and it changes the way in which people behave. And, 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 and it reduces our opportunities to exercise the creative capacities that God has placed in us. And it also restricts our ability to learn what it is to have freedom of choice. And that's so important. Are we talking
1: about welfare being coercive in some of these issues? Because if we're talking ideological positions affecting future generations, uh, the fact that people become dependent on government... Uh, Alex Cook, any thoughts around around how that sort of thing might work uh, in the way that governments control populations?
3: In, in terms of deco- this ongoing dependency? I think is so, what you mean? yes.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean,
3: <laughs> the way this is all heading is it's just this endless dependency um, and it's just growing because as, as you... You know, as Rod's right, as the, all the freedom gets restricted and the, the middle class shrinks... Ultimately, you're going to have more and more people turning to the government, uh, crying out with you know with their handouts, saying "Give me more." So we're just fueling it, and it's just a, you know a little bit every year, a small percentage every year gets gets more and more dependent on the government, and, and then what you end up with is generational uh, poverty, uh, and so you see this in countries like say Argentina to give people an example. Argentina, people don't realize, was the third richest country in the world a hundred years ago, but they started in the I think it was about the forties under the prawns became a a major welfare state. They sold a lot of the country's gold off and distributed amongst the population, which is a crazy thing to do. And the endless the result of that now is you've got generations of people who have been in poverty. So you've got kids who have never seen their parents or their grandparents work. And so this is the the long-term outcome of this endless dependency. Um, And so we need to say we need to get to a point where we say enough is enough we can't the government can't be this endless source of funds because as rod said before it's got to come from somewhere it comes from us it comes from the income earners that are paying for it all and so we need to reduce dependency and look for every strategy it's not just a case of removing the rots that's that's nice but we also need to actually backtrack and reduce um, the kinds of things that people are dependent on. I think when um, around the, the election with Malcolm Turnbull, they said that fifty percent of the Australian population were getting some form of handout or uh, you know payment from the government. And just think how that influences. Uh, Elections has a a massive impact on elections because people are always looking at what is the government going to give me? So we've created this dependency and entitlement culture and that we need to start backtracking uh, as quick as we can. And unfortunately, you know, we're talking about the budget, the budget does not do that. No one seems to want to make these tough decisions.
1: Okay, time is now short, and just a few minutes in our conversation remaining, and perhaps uh, just an end thought from each of you on our panel. And we'll start with Gavin Martin. But there is a certain a certain thought that uh, you know, uh, what does God say about economies? Uh, There are some. Insights and principles that we can glean, uh, we might even have a separation of uh, Caesar's realm to the kingdom of God. And perhaps there's a balance that we need to bring into all of that. But so far as last night's budget, uh, the way the trajectory is headed, uh, Gavin Martin, let me start with you. Any any closing thoughts on, on where we're headed into the future, uh, given that we've got a bit of a snapshot of our own economy? Uh,
0: yes, the overriding thought is that we're spending... Uh, more than we're earning and uh, we're effectively borrowing from the next generation and and, and we really need to address that as um, Alex and Rod have really articulated in those last two comments that um, yes the hard yards are still yet to be um, uh, done or undertaken and uh, hopefully there's a little bit more of a a longer term plan in in the next budget in in, uh,
2: May next year.
1: Uh, Rod St. Hill, uh, Caesar's realm, God's realm, uh, connection between the two. Any, any thoughts here?
2: Uh, look, I, I do agree with um, Alex's comment that it's time for the church to rise up and take back what it handed over to governments over a long period of time. We need to get more involved in looking after people right across you know, every dimension of life. That's, that's the big challenge for the church right now. And Alex Cook,
1: any final thought from you? Yeah, look, I mean, Rod,
3: Rod sort of touched on my sort of heart of it, and that is that we start reassessing how we look after people in need in our society. Because, you know, Jesus said, you'll always, you'll always have the poor with you. And I think the church has a fantastic mission opportunity here over over the coming years. As things get more challenging, we have an opportunity to, to go to Australians who are hurting, and give them the good news of Jesus and to to meet their needs, to lift them up. And there's all sorts of little things we can do. And, you know, we've got, Australia's blessed, you know, we've got churches all around the country that can all do their little bit in that community and bless people, whether it's helping them to start businesses, yeah, I love anything entrepreneurial. And I think uh, the way forward is entrepreneurialism. And I think we need a spirit of, of entrepreneurialism in the church. Um, so that we can start helping people, you know, restore dignity through employment uh, and helping people to tap into their God-given creativity. So there's massive opportunity here for the church to step in, uh, take back uh, this role and responsibility from the government, and, uh, yeah, to press forward
1: and to, to win people for Jesus as we do it, because it will be a golden opportunity. Well, economy, business, welfare, these are not beyond the frame of how we think about the issues of our nation as Christian believers. And uh, wonderful insights from our panellists over this past hour. This conversation will be available on a podcast a little later on this afternoon. If you want to connect with our guests today, let me give some connecting points. Alex Cook is the founder of Wealth With Purpose. The website, wealthwithpurpose.com. If you want to connect with Emeritus Professor, Dr. Rod St. Hill, Christian economist, background in banking and higher education, these days he's pastor at Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast and devotes time to Business as Mission. That's an organization as well as Kingdom Initiatives. That's an organization too. Here's how you connect with Dr. Rod St. Hill IgniteLifeChurch.com IgniteLifeChurch.com and Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth based in Melbourne, a senior financial advisor. His business model is founded on the idea that a person's true worth is not measured by financial net worth but rather that the individual is of inestimable value. His website connection, CornerstoneWealth.com.au Well, to the three of you, Alex, Rod and Gavin, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart and your expertise with us today on 2020. Thank you to Alex. My pleasure. Thanks, Neil. And to you, Rod. You're very, very welcome. And to you, Gavin Martin.
0: Thanks, Neil. Great to be with you.